Welcome to Cork Talks, a European Researchers' Night initiative where we talk to researchers and industry leaders who shape our everyday lives through their work. Our aim is to bring research to life, working to explain our changing world and to showcase the innovation that enables that change. In this week's Cork Talks, we delve into our changing planet. Our planet's climate varies without human influence. However, the significant and rapid changes we are experiencing now are a result of significant industrialization, deforestation and CO2 emissions. All aspects of our lives and the lives of those around the globe are being touched by the climate crisis and it is up to us to ensure the effects are minimal for our children. Today, we're going to speak to researchers who are helping us to understand the effects of the climate crisis, as well as to deal with and manage the consequences. While the situation emerges, we still have the power to affect positive change and we are delighted to be joined by two experts in the area to discuss what that might look like. Welcome to episode two of Cork Talks, where today we are discussing our changing planet. I'm joined by a fantastic panel of guests today. First up, we have Dr. Hannah Daly, a lecturer and researcher in E4 Systems. Hannah's research focuses on modelling and developing sustainable pathways for the energy system, encompassing energy access, climate change and air pollution. Hannah, could you talk to us a little bit about your work and research, starting with an explanation of what E4 Systems are? Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm a lecturer in the School of Engineering in UCC, and I'm also a funded investigator with the Marai Centre for Climate, Energy and the Marine. And my main research area is in basically modelling energy systems. And what is an energy system? It is um, not a component part of, of how we use energy, like a car or the electricity grid or something like that. It's how we look at all parts of energy flows through the whole uh, economy from where we get our energy, whether it's importing oil, growing trees, building wind turbines, how it's all transported across the energy system. So whether by truck, by pipeline, by grid, how it all fits together in terms of cost efficiency and then how we actually use energy, because you really need that macro sense of how energy flows across the energy system, how we as an economy, as society use energy to understand how we can get to a more sustainable energy pathway. So E4 systems, there are basically energy, environment, engineering, economic systems. So it really takes a really broad look at this part of our lives. Joining Hannah is Dr. Jean O'Dwyer, a lecturer in environmental science at UCC, who also leads the Environment and Health Research Lab. Jean, welcome. Could you tell us a little bit about your work and your research in this area as well? Thanks for having me here today. So as you said, I'm a lecturer in the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences in UCC, and I am a principal investigator in the Environmental Research Institute <coughs> And I'm also the head of environmental geosciences within the SFI funded centre, ICRAG. What I look at is um, particularly the impact of the natural environment on human health. So this ranges from anything from contaminants in the environment or pollution events and how they impact people, but also then things in a much kind of broader international scale, like the impact of climate change and human health and well-being. There is a lot of talk about you know, climate change, sustainability. When we say climate crisis, I might stay with you on this one, Jean. What exactly does that mean in very basic terms? Climate crisis is a, is a fairly new term to just kind of add some credence to just how serious the whole implications of climate change are. So obviously climate change is a phenomenon that we know has been happening now for quite some time. Um, and the reaction to it has been quite slow. And we're now in, I suppose, a critical period where we really have to make some very tough decisions and some very big actions to curtail the potential impacts that this has. 
So now we're kind of calling it that it's we're in crisis mode, um, that we really have to tackle this. So in a kind of a broader sense, the climate crisis specifically refers to the increasing global temperatures and the impacts that this will have on different ecosystems, on our oceans, on people, on on the entire planet and just placing urgency on our need to react to it now. Hannah, from an energy perspective, what are some of the main areas of research and solutions that you and your colleagues are working on towards tackling this climate crisis? My colleagues at the Energy Policy and Modelling Group um, in the Environmental Research Institute and in MARI, we build modelling tools to represent the way that energy is used across the system. And then we look at different pathways uh, to, to decarbonize the, the full energy system. The language that we use, we, we do optimization modelling, which, which sets a particular end goal, like a, a net zero energy system for 2050. And then the model shows us how, given our various assumptions about cost, about different technologies, how we can meet that goal of a net zero energy system at least cost. And the things that we come up with, the things that we input to the policy process as well, range from you know how many EVs need to be deployed in, over the next decades, how much wind capacity, how much biomass, and maybe what would the role of alternative fuel technologies be, like hydrogen is, is one thing that's getting more attention, how much biofuels we would need to produce to meet different pathways. We can also ask questions like, can we reduce our demand? So can we just drive less, heat our homes less, have a sort of industry that's less energy intensive? And how would that help meet our, our net zero energy goal by, by 2050? So energy is really the main source of carbon dioxide emissions, and it's the very difficult to, to mitigate many sectors like freight, like aviation, like heat and industry. You know, we, we, we kind of tend to look at the at the things like EVs and wind turbines, but there are many parts of the energy system that are very difficult to mitigate. So the reason that we have like one single uh, energy system model, like that tracks emissions and energy flows across everything, is that there are often blind spots uh, like those things that, that become um, very easy for policy to overlook. Uh, and so it's our role to, to highlight those and to, to propose solutions. And in terms of what you're working on at the moment, and it might seem like a very broad question, what's exciting you or showing, I suppose, the most potential in terms of making a significant um, impact, in ter- you know, for from an, an Irish perspective anyway, or European perspective? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what are you excited about? Yeah, loads of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just there's not enough hours in the day at the moment because uh, it's such an exciting time. There's huge tension from policy. There's huge interest in, in different emerging research fields as well. That's one thing. The main thing of interest that I'm leading at the moment is the redevelopment of our main energy systems modelling tool, which is called Times Ireland. It used to be called Irish Times, but it kept getting confused with the newspapers. So we've, <laughs> we've, we've, uh, we're renaming it Times Ireland. And this model has been developed by colleagues of mine. I've, I've just come back to Cork a year ago. So it's really, it's been their model um, and it's been developed over a 10 year period, at least. It's gone into informing many of the big uh, policy making sort of processes like the 2015 Low Carbon Act. We're undergoing a huge redevelopment of that model, um, hopefully in time to inform the 2021 Climate Action Plan. So as you probably know, the programme for government was negotiated this year and a key part of that was basically how can Ireland half greenhouse gas emissions in 10 years time. And that was a commitment that was uh, undertaken by this government. We're feeding into sort of mapping how that can be achieved, but we're hoping that this new model will be able to actually show how that 
um, that target can be met because actually nobody has done that analysis yet. When we're ta- looking into the future and, and you know, it's it sounds really, really promising and that's, you know, that's very comforting for, you know, even somebody like, like myself, you know, I, I don't have any expertise in this area of research or science. So that's really good to hear. I suppose on kind of like a daily level, you know, I suppose everybody knows that, you know, climate crisis is real, but I think maybe people aren't as aware of maybe how it impacts us on a daily basis. And Jean, I'd like to turn to you and ask about your area of research and uh, particularly in the crisis project, which is exploring societal health impacts and solutions regarding climate change in Ireland. What kind of impact is climate change having on our health on a day to day basis? That's the golden question. And it's actually extremely, it's extremely complicated. So obviously, climate change itself is this kind of kaleidoscope issue. Do you know, it's not black and white. There's many different things going on. And in terms of human health, the impacts are really quite varied. So so if we think kind of in a straightforward approach, you can have very direct impacts. So if you look at the forest fires there in the West Coast of the States or in, in Australia, and people sadly lost their lives from the fires, that's very much a very, you know, X happened and Y was the result. It was very straightforward. So there are things that are quite direct and obvious, and it's kind of easy for us to go, oh, look, the climate is warming and these fires are occurring with more frequency and people are dying. Um, so they're obviously a challenge, but potentially not as big a challenge as the indirect impacts, which is what we're particularly interested in the crisis project. And that is all the kind of things that are a bit more nuanced. So it's not the people getting swept away in floodwaters. It's the kind of the trickling down effect of the impacts of climate change. So like after a flood in the Shannon River catchment and things like that, is there an increase in waterborne infectious diseases following that? And will, will they increase in frequency under different climate projections, is there rising incidences in asthma or respiratory illness in response to increasing ozone? So it's extremely complicated. And then to make it even more complicated, we have the physical health side of things, from mortality, people dying or people suffering disease or illness. And then we have the well-being side of things, which I think now that we're all kind of been in lockdown for seven months, we have a greater appreciation of just how important well-being is. But you know, the impacts of like loss of livelihood. Uh, and things like that and how that impacts people's mental health and well-being. And that's a maybe potentially like a silent kind of killer in the whole climate change crisis that we'll be looking at within the project. Hard to do, but that's one of the, the aims of the project is try and assess the impact of extreme weather events um, on human health and well-being. It's interesting there when you were talking about um, air quality and air pollution. And as an asthmatic, I just it's a it's a particularly interesting area for me. I moved down from Dublin three years ago and out of nowhere got a massive flare up in my asthma and um, what's interesting to me is in the past couple of months we have seen some pretty scary statistics about air pollution particularly in Cork and Hannah I know that this is an area that you cover in your research as well how worried should we be you know I think there were two days where we had like extraordinarily high air pollution ratings how worried should we be about that and what it's doing to our health in in Cork City? It's something that has really come to the public consciousness over the last year or two. We've got a kind of a network of kind of lower cost air quality monitors across the city now. I'm not directly involved in this. I'm just sort of observing from the outside, maybe. Basically, um, we have a few different sources of air pollution and they mainly come from uh, how we use energy. And in Cork, you notice it on a cold, still night, these sort of foggy kind of still nights that are coming right now, six o'clock when people get home and they put the fire on. It's that basically uncontrolled burning of peat, of kind of low quality wood, 
or coal, smoky coal, or even smokeless coal actually has, has a big, um, is a large source of pollution as well uh, in fires that may be low efficiency stoves or open fires. Even in such a sort of a rich country as Ireland, we can get very, very significant levels of air pollution causing problems for asthmatics. And the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, models or estimates that it's related to around 1,300 premature deaths every year. Uh, that air pollution mainly coming from the particulate matter from burning mainly in homes like that in kind of built up areas. We also have sources of air pollution from diesel cars. This is one of the reasons why we need really to make energy policy in a joined up way. One of my uh, PhD students is, is studying the uh, impact of a car tax change that happened in 2008, which made the car tax based on the car CO2 band. And at the time, uh, policymakers expected that to encourage people to use smaller cars, lighter cars, more efficient cars, but it actually caused a big switch to diesel cars. Now people say, oh, they told us to buy diesel, but that's not the case. They, there was just this, this kind of policy signal towards low CO2 cars, but it actually caused this big switch to diesel cars. And diesel is a big um, source of nitrous oxide, which also inflames um, asthma and causes respiratory problems. It's not such a big cause of mortality as particulate matter, but it's still you know, responsible for a lot of hospitalization. So that's why when we're making climate policy and modeling these things, we have to do things in a very joined up way, expect unintended consequences, and also not just say optimize or not just plan for one thing, which maybe may CO2 or, you know, some policies just plan for, let's say, the lowest cost solution. We have to make these policies taking into account all of the factors that why energy is so important to us. It also heats our homes. We have a big problem with um, energy poverty and that a lot of people in the country can't heat their homes to a good enough standard. It's also very important. It's for people who live in cold homes, that's more important than, than climate change. But moving that person who's reliant on, say, a peat fire, who doesn't maybe have central heating or doesn't have enough money for to install central heating. The question is, how can we get them off fossil fuels onto a cleaner, sort of warmer home without putting too much cost on them? That's the biggest question. It's not necessarily ending fossil fuels right now. It is, it is how can we do it fairly to reduce air pollution, to improve health, all these things. One of the reasons you know, behind this podcast is we want to take this topic and break it down to, to how it's impacting people in their daily lives. And just staying on the topic of health, I'm really fascinated, Jean, by the particular area of re your research that links up environmental issues with antibiotic resistance. And that brings me to the topic of uh, the so-called antibiotic apocalypse, the phrase that is terrifying um, upon first hearing that has been banded around for the last couple of years, where basically we're becoming immune to the antibiotics that we're being given. So I suppose I'd just like you to tell me a little bit about your research into the link between the environment and antibiotic resistance. So antibiotic resistance or antimicrobial resistance, probably more, more correctly, is um, a phenomenon that's actually kind of like climate change in a lot of ways. So the climate has changed throughout history and the current climate change issue is very much anthropogenic. It's driven by humans and antibiotic resistance is, is much the same. It's a natural phenomenon. So bacteria evolve very quickly and they can develop resistance to loads of different things, including antibiotics. But humans now are driving it. So they're increasing the speed at which it happens. And it's primarily through the overuse and the misuse and the incorrect disposal of antibiotics across both human medicine and veterinary medicine. A couple of projects at the moment looking at this whole issue of, of antimicrobial resistance in the natural environment, which is fairly new area of research. So it's even only kind of recognized as a big deal by the World Health Organization in the last couple of decades. It was always considered a, a hospital issue or a clinical issue. 
But now we kind of know that the environment is definitely a driver of antimicrobial resistance. And there are certain things like water and things like that that are actual kind of reservoirs of these bacteria. So it's, it's, um, it's another concern to add to the list. One question I suppose that kind of pops out to me, like I'm listening to, you know, what you're saying about your findings and some of the issues. Do you think people are taking the climate crisis seriously enough? En masse, no, obviously, because yeah. we're still here. You know, we're on COP21. If, if the first one worked, we wouldn't have had a second one. I don't like saying that either, because you know, what's serious? Are we, is, is Greta Thunberg the benchmark of taking it seriously? Yeah. In which case, none of us do. And, yeah. um, you know, so there's different levels. I think people are cognizant of it, but it varies on generation, on political affiliation. There's no consistency. And that's the big issue, because this is a global problem that really needs kind of global cooperation. And I know we said earlier that you know, everybody knows that climate change is happening now. You know, there's a significant proportion of the global population who doesn't accept it. Yeah. And Joe, we say things like, do you believe in climate change? Like it's some sort of doctrine. When it's not, it's you know, it's a scientific hypothesis. You either accept the science or you reject the science. And if you're rejecting the science, you better have better science to back up and rejecting it, you know. So we need to make sure that everybody's on the same page. And then we need kind of champions who will take it more seriously than the average person or whatnot. But we're not taking it as seriously as we need to be. And like eventually we will have to. And it's just a case now of what's the price of kind of sweeping it under the rug for the last 50 years. A question I'd like to ask both of you actually, and I'll stay with you, Jean. You're both lecturers. You are working with the next generation of activists and to, to use, I suppose, maybe an, an overly used phrase of change makers, you know, the future champions of climate change, we would hope. Tackling the climate change, I should say. What is the general sense that you're getting from the young people that you work with? Is there a sense of urgency? Is there a sense that they want to step up and drive change? From my perspective, anyway, in the environmental sciences, the 18, 19, 20 year olds give me hope. I think they're way more clued in than I was when I was their age. And I'm a mother as well. I believe Hannah is too. Even my daughter, you know, who's small, they're learning it in primary school now. Do you know, they have more, a better yeah. grasp on things. So I'm very hopeful for the next generation and my generation included, you know. So yeah. I think that we're going to be in better shape with them as they move through society. So very hopeful. Well, that's really good to hear. And the same question to yourself, Hannah. Likewise, I lecture on sustainable energy and modelling to primarily to engineers, but also to the higher diploma in sustainability and enterprise, which is a new um, diploma that, that came on this year. And I had a huge sense from from the group that I'm teaching that they that they want to know how they can make a difference. And a lot of the time they actually don't know, they don't understand how their own sort of education is so relevant to the future. You know, that's that's some of the things I try to, to show them the most. Just pulling up a poll here that I did uh, about 100 students in sustainable energy, and I asked how they felt about climate change. And almost 80% said that they're either concerned or terrified about climate change. So wow. most, only 2% said that they don't think it's a problem. 13% said that they feel a bit concerned, but they feel confident that we'll solve it. I'm looking forward to polling them again about this. A lot of people sort of tend to emotionally distance them, distance themselves from the actual impacts that are happening at the moment that will keep happening as the decades go on. I really have a, a huge sense of motivation for them, but I'm not sure that they understand how their own careers are part of the solution. Yeah. Um, I'm very interested in interdisciplinary lecturing as well. I'm a lecturer in the School of Engineering, but many of them don't have any exposure to policy or to economics or to sociology. And 
I'm very interested in introducing them to these concepts because, you know, to an engineer, often there's a simple solution, you know, that they sort of see the solution as, as being, you know, it's, it's, it's this technology, simple, done, you know, why it's just everybody else's fault that it's not taken up. But you really need to understand the wider context, the global context, um, geopolitics, sociology, energy poverty, indirect impacts like air pollution and things like that to, to really appreciate why progress isn't as fast as, uh, as it has been. It's great to hear that you have such hope for the future generation and, and for the future of this battle. I don't want to talk about COVID for too long, but I just, I suppose it pops into my head in terms of, you know, progressing this and, and going forward with the work that needs to be done. Even on a very basic level, anecdotally, you'll hear of people who would have been separating out, will say they're rubbish and who would have been absolutely committed to doing their recycling. That has kind of gone out of the window um, with COVID. Same in terms of like there's been an increase in packaging and I suppose that's just on on a a small level I'd be interested to hear what you think um, in terms of how far back if at all has the pandemic taken us in terms of progressing this fight towards reversing if if possible climate crisis. My research group did uh, some analysis in the early days of the lockdown on what the changing traffic trends and electricity demand trends meant for CO2 emissions this year. And actually, we, we looked again at, at our modelling back in April, and it looks like we estimated fairly correctly what emissions would look like for 2020. And we're kind of estimating, or the data right now indicates that CO2 emissions will be down about 5% this year on what they would have been otherwise. Um, so you might think that's great, but the real problem with CO2 emissions is that you really need a sustained reduction. Basically, our warming impact isn't going to stop increasing until CO2 emissions go to zero because CO2 emissions last for centuries in the atmosphere. So it's sort of like pouring water into a bathtub. You know, the, the level only stops rising until you turn the water off or else you, you remove some water at the same time as putting it in. So while 5% this year sounds, you know, on one level, very impressive, it's a drop in the ocean compared mm-hmm. with what is actually needed. The Programme for Government commits to an average of 7% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions every year between now and 2020. And that 5% is likely to rebound very quickly next year, as soon as air, air travel resumes and uh, as soon as we can drive around and, you know, and see our friends again. Yeah. <laughs> so the biggest impact of COVID on all of this is political attention, because what is actually really needed is not people to change their behaviour or for people to be scolded into doing something differently. Yeah. It is for the whole structure of policy to be focused on this. Every political decision needs to be focused on changing the economic framework on how people live. That is making towns and cities more attractive places to live so that we can walk and cycle to to do our jobs, figuring out how to retrofit our homes in an affordable way and switching to things like heat pumps and biomass away from fossil fuels um, and, and making electric cars affordable to people. That won't be done, you know, unless there's huge political attention. I work fairly closely with policymakers and I'm, I'm kind of happy to report that even though the government is, is very, very, you know, caught up with the COVID crisis, of course, they haven't deprioritised climate change. Jean, for people who say or who think that I suppose they can't make a difference, what can we all do on a very basic level, on a daily basis to, to help to make our environments more sustainable? Yeah, that's the big challenge with climate change because it's, it's such a big issue. It's very easy to feel like one 
person can't do anything or it's very easy to feel like what's the point of Ireland doing something when America pulled out the Paris Accord. Obviously, one person doing it alone will have no impact. But if everybody changes their ways, you'll have a global movement. So I don't want to now I'm also Joe, I've been doing this quite a while. I'm not going to promote people by saying switch make sure make sure your lights are switched off, going to bed and things like that. Yeah. And Hannah kind of touched on this earlier. So I could say if you're buying your next car or you're building a new house, make sure you buy an electric vehicle and make sure you get underfloor heating. Being sustainable in Ireland and many other countries at the moment is a privilege. And to be able to get the high kind of energy efficiency products or to be able to buy the good pair of jeans that will last you five years instead of going to pennies every second month for a pair of 13 euro ones. People need to be supported to do that. Like it's, it's, it's a privilege to be sustainable in a lot of ways. So we need people to care but we also need the government and policy to support them to do it so I don't want to place the burden on people specifically because I think most people are good intentioned and you know it it makes more sense to have energy efficient appliances and things like that just for your energy bills alone but to actually afford them is something that really needs to be driven from a top-down perspective and we actually create a system where the lower um, economic classes or the lower middle can actually be it's it's the usual kind of thing you know that yeah. um, the rich get richer. Yeah. People can can afford the electrical vehicles mm-hmm. and things like that, save money in the long term. So we have to kind of completely rethink policy. Yeah, and in terms of you know getting into the specifics, what do you think the government should be doing different, or what do you think they could do to push this further? Now there are incentives, obviously, if you want to retrofit, if you want to insulate your house more, and things like that. There's a lot of grants, but a, like like a lot of things in Ireland, including education grants and things like that, the band that which people can access it. Can be quite slim you know and if you're earning more than x amount you might get access to it or there's loads of caveats around things so we need to be way more open in terms of what we do or just completely change it all together and make things tax deductible you know so that there's a greater incentive to do things that if you buy an electric vehicle that is completely tax deductible there's loads of different things and like there's loads of examples all across europe where they've done this quite well or even like community cooperative energy sources, you know, where a community comes together and they generate their own electricity essentially and put anything surplus back on the grid. That's not really my side of things, but there's loads of things we can do. We just need to be really quite innovative now and listen to people like Hannah, you know, on the energy side of things and actually hear what they have to say in terms of how we move forward and make the best decisions for society and of course the environment. And just to touch on something that Jean said there, Hannah, if I could turn to you, in terms of businesses' strategies, um, you know, you'll see a lot more companies that are kind of stepping up and are, you know, are using more eth- ethically sourced and, and sustainable materials or, you know, they've changed their packaging. What is your opinion on what the businesses have been doing to support sustainability? Do you think they're going far enough? Many businesses are well-intentioned in wanting to lower their carbon footprint and I commend the ones that are genuinely making a difference there. But ultimately, a a business's end goal is to make profit and they're typically only responding to the needs of either the market or policy incentives so that they're, you know, they're only taking measures that they have to or that they think will attract people. Many times, you know, be frank that there are levels of greenwashing that I find kind of astounding. 
you'll see a certain local airport <laughs> uh, claiming themselves to be the most sustainable airport because they, they you know source their electricity from renewables without sort of taking into account the fact that the airport itself facilitates huge amounts of energy and carbon emissions from yeah. the flights. There's a danger that people can sort of feel good about doing something like, oh, I'm going to this really sustainable airport, you know, so I can go off on my weekend flight to, to some European city and f- feel good about it. It's very important that people don't feel good about, you know, there being recyclable packaging or something like that. And, you know, there's also a misconception that packaging and, and plastic is responsible for a lot of our emissions. It is responsible for almost none of our emissions. Okay. You know, what, what really matters is is, is um, transport, yep. home heating, electricity and agriculture. Those are the big sources of emissions in Ireland. So there's no easy solution. There's no sort of little tweak that we can make to our lives or that a business can make. And, and going back to something that you asked Jean earlier on about what government can do there's no simple solution it has to be something that's embedded in every single government department in every single decision process i suppose it's a principle that every government policy or investment has to have value for money there also needs to be just a guiding principle for every decision that it has to be sustainable you can't just make decisions based on value for money or something like that i'm afraid that a lot of the sort of the sustainability themes that you get from businesses is is really just responding to you know people wanting to feel good about consuming like in reality it's it's not going to make much of a difference yeah Following on from what we were saying about government policy there, I suppose we couldn't have this conversation if we didn't talk about the UN um, Sustainable Development Goals. And obviously, since their introduction, they have been a huge, huge part of this conversation. You know, there have even been rankings brought in where like our own university um, is is being measured against the SDGs. How important a blueprint do they provide in terms of progressing in, in this area? I think the SDGs are a fantastic framework because because they're not something that has been sort of decided by one country or by a bunch of uh, scientists or something like that. They were negotiated and adopted by every country in the world, developing and developed alike. And they progressed from the previous Millennium Development Goals that were mainly targeted at poverty alleviation, hunger, health, things like that in um, developing countries. But the SDGs are really uh, a framework that we can all get behind, that you can say that this is something that every country has gotten behind. Those include universal access to uh, sustainable energy. That's something quite close to my heart. In my last job at the International Energy Agency, I led the work on energy access. And uh, about two and a half billion people in the world, billion people in the world live in homes without access to, to clean energy for cooking. So basically they cook with solid fuels, on inefficient stoves, things like that. And you talk about girls going to fetch firewood. The amount of, of lives lost, babies born prematurely as a result of that is really staggering. And the fact that that's a sustainable development goal, SDG 7.1.2, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you can really point to that and say that we're failing on this. It's something that we signed up to. The data shows that that it's a, it's a huge problem. It's actually fairly cheap to solve if there's enough political attention. And, and the SDG framework is something that we can really get behind. And UCC have been doing a fantastic job, I think, at practicing what they preach and really trying to fully assess UCC's carbon footprint and figuring out how we can decarbonize. There's some fantastic people there really making a meaningful difference for, for the university. This conversation is so fascinating to me because I'm actually finding I couldn't wait to do this this episode today. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I know so much about this, you know, working in UCC and, you know, just staying on top of things. But actually, you were saying there, Hannah, it has really struck with me that like there's a lot of misconception around this kind of stuff. 
stuff and like even with me I suppose in my daily life the first thing I think of is packaging but actually you know there's a whole other area that doesn't even come into my mind and Jean if I could turn to you and ask and I hope I'm not putting you on the spot by asking what is the biggest misconception around sustainability and climate crisis that you have come across and that you would like to address? It's a funny one. So it kind of comes in a wave. So every now and then you see and you'd wonder why sustainability, the word has been thrown around so much now it's kind of lost all meaning. And and people have a kind of a a misconstrued sense of what it actually is. And when people hear the word sustainability, they immediately think of environmentally friendly. And that's not true. That's the biggest misconception. It's a balance between society, economy and environment Mm -hmm. is what true sustainability is. So we saw the, the straw phenomenon of was it 2018? Yeah. This year has been so long. It could, have been, <laughs> it could have been 10 years ago. But like that society as a whole just lost their minds at the thoughts of plastic straws. Yeah. And almost overnight, we were able to fix it. Mm-hmm. And while obviously plastic is a big problem and we see the problems in oceans and things like that, I was taken aback at the time going, why this? Why now? <laughs> Do you know, when yeah. we have kind of, I would consider bigger kind of looming threats. The biggest, I suppose, misconception is that people tend to zone in on one problem, thinking that this is the be-all and end-all problem, but it's actually just one of a thousand things. And that we talk about sustainability, it's the whole kind of ecosystem of the world. It's not one particular problem. So you said you're concerned about packaging and packaging has always been in recycling and people mm-hmm. love that you know, they're, they're champions of recycling and things like that. But there's just so many other things So I think one of the biggest kind of misconceptions is that we have one problem that we need to fix. We actually have loads of them um, and we need to think about things broader. Can I ask you the same question as well, Hannah? I I, I agree fully with Jean and I would say that there's a misconception that it's up to individuals to change their behaviour, that somehow we're bad as people for just living our lives. But, you know, the reason that the climate crisis is so difficult to tackle, why it's such a wicked problem, to use that phrase, is that it's just come about because of normal people living their lives, not doing any harm to anybody, you know. I, you know, I driving my kids to the school, turning on the heating. These are all every single things that we do every day, you know, that add up to global warming. So I think there's a misconception that it's sort of down to bad people mm-hmm. and that, you know, there's this sort of a, a guilty effect. That causes polarisation then as well. It causes people to feel blamed. You get the same with farmers. Right now there's big attention on emissions from agriculture and agriculture is a big source of Ireland's warming. But, you know, it's not because farmers are bad. Um, they just happen to be in an industry which, you know, 20 years ago there wasn't such a, an awareness for that. Ireland is just very good at doing dairy and beef farming uh, and those are the incentives that were sort of given to us. Now we find that it's, it accounts for around a third of our um, greenhouse gas emissions um, and we have to suddenly change track so you know farmers are kind of feeling blamed they're saying that that it's unfair that they're being targeted so much and that's a valid argument so it's very important to not blame individuals unless there's individuals for example spreading misconceptions or or trying to prevent action uh, for example but but that's something that I would like everybody to be more conscious of that it's not about you know what political side you're on or what industry that you're in uh, you know we just need to figure out how to as a society move towards a more sustainable 
pathway that benefits everybody. I suppose I couldn't let this conversation pass either today without touching on what's happening in the States at the moment. And by the time this episode will be going out, we will hopefully know (laughs) at this stage you wouldn't even, you wouldn't know who the next president of the United States is going to be. So one of the things that Joe Biden has said he's going to do if he is elected is that he's going to rejoin the Paris Accord. How significant a step forward would that be in this progress? I, I suppose less of it being a step forward it would be that it would be just a step back to where we were yeah. before we had uh, we had somewhat of a climate denier as, yeah. as the most um, powerful man in the world. You know, Joe Biden has has is almost there, yeah. um, but it's it's really important for America to have that global leadership role. China has committed in the last number of weeks to have a, a net zero economy by 2060. Mm-hmm. America is the second largest emitting country, and it's just crucial in terms of leading both from a political side because why are why should we mitigate if if the second biggest emitter doesn't, um, but also from an innovation perspective. So much innovation comes from the states bringing new technologies, uh, costs down for technologies. It's, it's, it's really important that that signal comes for our own sort of mitigation efforts as well. The thing about climate change as well is that Ireland doesn't have its own climate, that everybody has to work together and the states being such a, an important power, it's absolutely critical. So I might allow myself a glimmer of hope <laughs> after this. I'm going to wrap up now in a minute, but um, Jean, there's a lot of talk, about, uh, a lot of work going into modelling and, and working towards um, healthier cities. And it's probably a broad question, but what in basic terms does a healthy city look like? What, what should we be aspiring? To. I suppose the whole concept of, of a healthy city means that you have to have this loads of things have to come together yep. across engineering and science and society and things like that. But in an ideal world, I suppose, and we've had this increase in urbanization across human history anyway, that people are moving out of rural areas and into towns. But Ireland's kind of one of the perfect places to do it because it is so small, where you have cities that are supported through policy, whatever, that are affordable, that people can live in them with relative comfort so that there is a good uh, transport network that can get people to and from their work so that they're not reliant on cars. I mean, it's not unheard, like if you go to the Netherlands or whatever, the the majority of people cycle because they have the infrastructure to allow that. I wouldn't cycle on a road in Cork and Limerick to save my life most times because you'd be afraid you'd be taken out. Uh, So you have to put in the infrastructure into place. To be a bit sceptical about it, I think that like Ireland kind of tends to put the cart before the horse a lot of the times and there's no planning goes into things and then we realise, oh, we should have done that. You You have to build cities with the idea that people will live in them, that people will commute to and from them. And then, of course, all the the bells and whistles to go with any kind of sustainable living where you have kind of communal heating supplies or you have really highly insulated buildings, almost to passive standards to ensure you're not wasting energy and things like that. It's it's very much a design issue, largely. Um, I mean, if you look at even Dublin, should we only connected the newest there in the last year? That was the bane bane of my life for three years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so... um, so like healthy cities isn't um isn't my area of expertise, but it has to just has to be more integrated mm-hmm. thinking and planning is crucial. Yeah. And it has to be affordable then. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Makes sense to have these beautiful sustainable buildings that are costing two and a half thousand euro a month in rent or whatever. 
And would you have anything to add to that, Hannah? No, I, I just love the description you've painted of, of sustainable and healthy cities. I, I lived in, in Paris and London before I um, before I came back to Cork. And, you know, the, they have a lot going for them. But I think since one thing that the COVID crisis has has led to has been a huge focus on uh, sustainable urban mobility, it means walking, cycling, public transport in those cities. Um, you know, I look with jealousy at all the streets that have been pedestrianized in Paris, local transport networks that have been set up in London. You know, the future of global population is urbanization. I think now there's there's far more people living in cities than there are in rural areas. And that trend is just going to accelerate. As, as, as Jean said, we need to planning. We need, you know, I, I actually did end up buying a house in the countryside against what I thought what I thought we would do. So we do have to drive my girl to school. But, you know, unless I wanted to live in a, in a certain type of area in Cork, there's just no area where it's where there's quiet. It's, it's hard to have good quality of life in a lot of Irish yeah. villages because often there's a huge road driving through. There's no good footpaths or playgrounds for kids, things like that. So if you want some outdoor space, you have to have a big garden yourself. So I, I just think that we can do so much more in Ireland. I'm, I'm laughing here because I'm also sitting in a house in the country. <laughs> but another thing I think that, we, and this is kind of a, an Irish phenomenon as well, we are obsessed and always have been with having you know, our own homes that are detached in the countryside, <laughs> like yeah. me and Hannah now. And there should be, especially since my de- my generation anyway, and potentially the generation that follows us, that we're hit with two recessions and it's not easy to get on the, the property market anymore. There should be a drive to kind of change people's thinking into like living in apartments, but good quality apartments um, that aren't costing a crazy amount of money every month and that you have these long-term leases or that you have the affordable kind of apartment, multi-story settings within cities that would suit younger people or families that you see all over Europe and things like that and just change the way we think about things. If I could just add to that, if you don't mind, because I I agree completely. So my husband is from the Czech Republic, which um, because of various political paths did central planning very, very well. (laughs) So he grew up at the edge of a city, maybe twice the size of Cork, the second largest city in the country. Uh, he was never driven to school. He grew up in an apartment with a small little garden, uh, which had a garage, a basement for storage. Uh, you know, I've, I've been to apartments in Ireland and they're just sort of, they're not designed for sort of long-term living. They're, they're yeah. designed for, you know, people in the early 20s, sort of before they buy their their proper house, you know. This isn't really my my, my area. I don't know what we need to do to, to change that. But the, the area that my husband grew up in, he could get a tram or a bus to the centre of town in 15 minutes but there was also hiking trails, even a ski slope beside him. Uh, he could cycle with to his friend's place for, you know, to play football. There was loads of facilities, things like that. Uh, and, and he never had to be driven to school. And that sounds great, but we just don't have that here. Well, thank you so much. I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much for what has been a fascinating and really eye-opening discussion. We're delighted to host you on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you. So that's all for now. Thanks for joining us on Cork Discoveries, our changing planet. Thanks again to Hannah and Jean for joining us today. And tune in again next week for episode three, Our Changing World. Cork Talks is brought to you by Cork Discoveries, a European Researchers' Night initiative. Cork Discoveries runs from November 26th to 28th at corkdiscoveries.org. With thanks to our partners, UCC Academy, UCC, Chagask, Cork City Council, the British Council and Black Rock Castle Observatory. This project has received funding from the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme under grant agreement number 955330.